welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. My name is Bobby, if we haven't met, so hello. Today is indeed the second Sunday of Lent, and if Lent is this really meaningful time of self-reflection for you, that's great. But if you're like, Lent, Schment, (laughs) these church seasons are just kind of weird, honestly, that's fine too. As someone who loves rituals and symbols, I trust in their ability to guide faith, even when we're hardly paying attention. And there's this compelling argument for liturgical practices that goes like this. We are the sorts of creatures whose orientation to the world is shaped by the body up more than the head down. In other words, what we do is who we are. So here's my own plug for our Lent community liturgies coming up. Of course, we have this worship night here on the east side. Oh, you are excited. I mean, Festival Hall is so cool. So I'm really looking forward to that. Of course, there's the contemplative prayer event next Saturday already, and it's all about welcoming prayer, which is a practice. And it's about connecting with God in the grit of our everyday lives. And finally, our Holy Week stations of the cross. And these liturgies shape us. We return to them every year. And I deeply believe that they shape us for our good. So speaking of liturgies for our good, what are your feelings about the color purple? I mean, I love it. I loved purple as a kid. Maybe you two had a wild for purple phase. And I actually sewed a dress in 4-H that was purple rayon and had a big ruffle around the waist and big purple puffed sleeves. Ah, that's my niece in the dress that I sewed when I was little. But as cute as my niece is rocking this bit of 90s fashion, purple still, when I loved it so much, was just purple to me. But in Lent, purple is so much more. Purple draws us into the paradoxical nature of God's ways in the world. And the color purple is traditionally the color of royalty. So we associate purple with the metaphor of Christ as king. But Lent is this reminder that we prepare for a different kind of king, a different kind of leader, a different kind of politics. And as we make our way towards the crucified one, we see a king who trades jeweled crowns for a crown of thorns, opts for a silence instead of defensiveness. I mean, I feel like we could all remember that. And suffers with us instead of striking out against us. And all of that story is right here in the color purple and the stole that we wear during Lent. The beauty of ritual is that everything tells a story. Everything comes from somewhere and stories shape us. Which brings us to our Lent series in Jonah. The only minor prophet in the Hebrew Bible shaped as a story. And last week, Scott called Jonah a goof And I think that is a fresh and kind of hilarious take. It's appropriate, too, as we drop into the story that's already in motion. I mean, what kind of prophet of God 
just runs from God. Then after God says, go warn Nineveh, Jonah the goof runs the other way. He jumps onto a ship, sets out for something like a timeshare in Tarshish, and proceeds to nap during an intense storm at sea, like any Enneagram 9. Any Enneagram 9s in the room? Because like, you all love a nap <laughs> when it's an intense time. So today, we pick up the story in the middle of Jonah chapter 1, and I'm calling this sermon Hilarity on the High Seas, and we will talk about comedy of the absurd, cosmic Q&A, fear and loathing at sea, and look who's praying now. But first, join me as we pray. God of all seasons, we settle in today, aware of the spaces that we come from. Maybe we've had a busy week, or a discouraging few days. Maybe we've been overwhelmed, or had trouble just quieting our worry. Maybe we've been disconnected from others, our own bodies. Maybe we've had some conflict with those around us. We just take this moment to feel ourselves in this place, our feet on the ground, the breath in our lungs. There's grace for us in all of it. Love for us when we are not our best. And opportunities to learn and to grow and to change. So Jesus, we wonder today what your word of life is for us. In spirit, you are here. We are not alone. And for all of this, we give thanks. Amen. So, for a long time now, Scott Wall has been trying to get me to watch the YouTube smash hit, Hot Ones. I mean, is it a hit? <laughs> Maybe. I actually have no idea. But every month or so, or what feels like that, it's like Scott has scheduled it in his calendar to start talking to me about hot ones in our team office at Kensington and makes this reference and reminds me that, yes, indeed, I should watch it. Has Scott well talked about hot ones here? I wondered if you had, but no, you haven't. Anyway, the premise of Hot Ones is that the host, Sean Evans, asks famous people questions while they attempt to eat chicken wings. Not just plain old chicken wings, though, you guys. These wings get spicier and spicier and spicier thanks to this whole lineup of hot sauces. And this week, he did it. I finally watched Hot Ones. Now, I decided to bring my YouTube loves together for my first viewing of an episode of Hot Ones, so I chose the conversation with Brad Leone from Bon Appetit Test Kitchen, who hosts the YouTube show It's Alive. And it's a cooking show all about fermentation, which I've never tried, but still, I never miss an episode. Anyways, Hot Ones, it's 
absurd. Brad Leone doesn't even like spicy things because he claims his mouth is just a bit too sensitive. And as the questions move along, Brad gets like sweatier and sweatier and there are curses flying and napkins get swapped out so Brad doesn't rub hot sauce into his eyeballs. Now, while I am laughing pretty hard at the suffering of another, a moment happens in the conversation that connects with something I really, really care about. And it's about genuine human interaction. And Brad says that there was this change that they made at Bon Appetit that captivated a new audience. Where Bon Appetit used to rely on videos shot from above, you know, over hands and pans, Bon Appetit moved towards videos with actual human interaction, like what you're seeing. They are more personality-driven, with all kinds of bloopers that are just left in. And this genuine human interaction is why me and literally millions of other people love Bon Appetit. And genuine human interaction is one of the appeals, I think, of Hot Ones, too. Like, real people having real conversations around, yes, an absurd premise from fermenting fish jerky to consuming sadistically spicy chicken wings. And the result is that pain and mistakes are places where people meet in genuine ways. And in the section of the Jonah story that we turn to today, we witness genuine human interaction between these pagan sailors and Jonah, this fleeing prophet. And all of this interaction is profoundly important to moving the plot forward. A huge storm threatens the lives of everyone on board. But there's all this dialogue before, well, before Jonah, you know what happens, but we'll get to it in a minute. So we're going to pick up in chapter 1, verse 7. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots and find out who is responsible for this calamity. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Now, so many elements of the Jonah story exist as foils to Jonah. Whenever new characters or elements arise, we are meant to contrast them with Jonah as a person. And sometimes the comparison is absurd. So let's take the sailors. Something that we fail to catch when we read the story in English is that the word for sailors and the word for angels are homophones. They have the same pronunciation in Hebrew, but of course different meanings. So the word is malak for sailors and malak for angels. And in an oral culture, before mass printing and widespread literacy, this word choice would have been a shock. Like, wait, wait, are there angels on this ship? No, they must be sailors, but like, what if they're like angels? It's kind of fun, right? This play with language. Now, these nouns swing the entirely opposite direction from heaven to earth, really. And Jewish scholar Uriel Simon points out that in three places, sailors, malachim, which is the form of malak in plural masculine, is replaced by just men, anashim. So Simon argues that the move shifts from the listeners seeing the sailors as professionals 
to experiencing them as this common, with this common existential status of humans just afraid for their lives. So we've gone from wondering if these guys are sailors or angels or like everyday men or people like you and like me. And there's nothing quite like a crisis to put everyone on common ground or stormy seas as it were. There is this unifying force in our frailty. And the journey of Lent is meant to remind us in this all in it together status. So like, what if you are the angel someone needs in a storm? Like, what if you are the professional who can risk asking the right question to guide a tense moment? What if you were just the everyday earthling, not so different from the person beside you, and just your presence is a comfort? Like genuine human interaction happens in vulnerable spaces. We acknowledge our frailty on Ash Wednesday, and we work to stay in touch with that weakness during Lent, that weakness, and our weakness draws us together. So Jonah's mistakes are found out by these sailors turned angels turned men. And now it's time for kind of a heart to heart. Like what are they all going to do about the life-threatening storm? So the sailors asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He said, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So verse 9 is the first time we actually hear Jonah speak. Like all other speech on Jonah's part has been nonverbal. He runs away, he boards a ship, he goes below the deck. Now, at my house, when Jonathan and I watch a movie, Jonathan loves to point out the who am I moment in a story. Like at some point, the main character will say something that answers the question, who am I? Seriously, start listening for it, you'll see it. So the sailors ask the question that my husband is obsessed with, who are you? And Jonah says, I am a Hebrew. It's his who am I moment. And I am a Hebrew would have been a perfectly normal way to introduce an Israelite to a foreigner. Except the word in Hebrew is ivri. And ivri means one who crosses over. So Hebrew people saw their identity as transitional. They are the people who cross over the river Jabbok the Red Sea, and the Jordan. And so Jonah says he belongs to these water-crossing people, but we will soon find out that instead of being one who crosses through water to freedom, Jonah's just going to sink deep into the sea and will be far from free. And if we take a moment with this, I think we can empathize with Jonah here. Do you ever hold so firmly to an old identity that really doesn't describe you well anymore? 
Like, you worked so hard to become this person, to hold this identity, but really, it's not who you are. At least it's not all that you are. Like, maybe you really wanted to be a parent, and it's much harder than you thought it would be. Maybe you wanted to be this outstanding professional in your field, and the opportunities just didn't surface for you. Maybe you are like a hard introvert, but it has walled you off from important relationships. You can be more than one thing. You need to be more than one thing. So yeah, yeah, Jonah, you're a Hebrew, but what else? Well, Jonah says, I'm the guy who tried running away from a God who is everywhere. And you can just hear this back and forth between these guys on the ship in the storm. The sailors say, you did what, man? And Jonah mutters, I, 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 I tried to uh, outrun God who is literally everywhere I go. And the sailors say, so you're telling us that you tried to outrun your God who you say made everything above and everything below, everything you can see and everything you can't see? And Jonah kind of like shifty-eyed and maybe like kicking the deck with his soggy boots says, uh, yeah, like, that's exactly what I did. Like, do you hear a bit of confession here? After answering the who am I question, Jonah answers the who is God question. And the narrator uses this rhetorical device called merism to give the answer. And merism is when the parts are split up to create the whole. So Jonah's confession that he worships the God of the sky and the sea and the dry land is meant to convey the cosmic. Now, from where we sit, with science at the center of our understanding of the cosmos, we have this concept that everything we know evolved from an explosion billions of years ago. And all those parts come together to form our whole, where everything is interrelated and interdependent in vast and minute ways. We are made of the dust of the universe, and to that dust we shall return. I mean, that's our Ash Wednesday confession. And the narrator of Jonah seems to understand that in the vastness of the cosmos, the divine pays attention to the minute parts. So we can't outrun ourselves because we can't outrun the maker of lips and limbs and the hair standing on the back of our necks when we are afraid. And we will never be able to wall off the work of God, present in the questions of sailors who worship other gods in the seas which tell a wild and terrifying tale. So maybe your answer to the question, who am I? It's something like a confession to just, I am, God is, you fill out the rest. Okay, back to the scene. 
The sailors are even more afraid after Jonah tells them who he is and who his God is. So they ask, what have you done? And remember, Jonah had told them he is running away from God. Now, the sea was getting rougher and rougher, or as Robert Alter translates, the sea was storming more and more. And the sailors say, what should we do to calm the sea? And Jonah says, pick me up, throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this horrible storm has come upon you. And then there's this clear-eyed compassion in verse 13. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. But they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Now, it could be that the sailors just aren't convinced that a human sacrifice to the sea god would change the storm. But all the same, they work hard to get through the storm without making Jonah walk the plank. But what's really going on here? For one thing, the sailors are the subjects of the verb fear throughout the story. But here, fear has this intensifying quality with the adjective great added to the construction. Now, fear is this interesting, like almost third character in the scene. Knowing what we know about the Assyrian Empire that ruled Nineveh, Jonah would have been dealing with his own fear too. We're told that the Assyrians were this ultimate enemy for Israel in the ancient world. I don't think any of us would be interested in going back in time to declare the love of God for people so bent towards violence and the annihilation of groups of people. But guess what? That's what the book of Jonah is doing. A Jewish scribe who lived long after Assyria brutally conquered Israel sat down and wrote this story. It's a story about a prophet who was meant to tell all those dirty Assyrians that God loved them. Of course, Jonah's afraid of grace like that. I mean, so are we. That means loving the person you're afraid of, even if the person is you. Like, Jonah's not only afraid of Nineveh, I think he's afraid of his own power to do what God wants him to do. That maybe he'll play a part to bring peace to a people who showed no peace to his people. Jonah would rather die than give Nineveh a second chance. He certainly doesn't want that second chance to come through him. So when Jonah says, no, really, guys, here's what you're going to need to do. Throw me over the side of the ship and the sea will grow calm. The sailors finally take him up on the offer. Jonah fears and loathes his enemies. And his loathing becomes internalized. And here's the truth about our hatred, our fear, our distrust in a big-hearted God who loves everything and everyone. When you insist on hating others, politicians you disagree with, people who hurt you in the past, a partner who does not love you the way that you want to be loved, when you hold tight like that, to hurt and hate. It goes deep. And rather than heal, we harm ourselves and the people around us. Trust me, I have held tightly to my share of hatred. 
It did not make me a better person. The point of Jonah is to tell God's people that even after all that they've lost, even after unspeakable terror, forced relocation, extermination from Nineveh itself, grace is like a wild storm insisting on hard truth that always leads to love. The point of the story is to tell you that anywhere you go, in obedience, in rebellion, that's where God goes to. But if you aren't ready to welcome grace powerful like a harsh storm in your life, if you can't imagine the love of God for someone who hurt you, you know what? It's okay. There's more to the story, to your story up ahead. And no one's rushing you, or the characters in Jonah for that matter. But while you welcome the hate or the pain, you know, move through your anxiety or your confusion, why not try a dose of agnosticism. Yes, agnosticism, where you concede that you cannot know the intricacies of the divine, the depths of God's compassion, the lengths God might go to meet you. And in the Cambridge Dictionary of Christian Theology, this Anglican priest, Stephen White, argues for a recovery of agnosticism in Christian faith. And White says that since the mid-19th century, Christians have turned and run from agnosticism. Instead, we choose the illusions of certainty and hardline fundamentalism, and we have suffered for this trade-off. And maybe some of you today, you don't need agnosticism, in which case, just let it pass you by. But others need to know that you can have an agnostic faith right here in the Christian tradition. You can pray agnostic prayers all the time. They sound like this. I don't know. I don't understand. I can't even imagine. An agnostic faith keeps you open to the insights of strangers, open to the ways relationships will change your mind, open to grace that will find you no matter how far you run or how deep you sink. Agnosticism for Lent, like giving up on the certainty of God. Maybe give it a try. So we finish the story today with these verses. Then the sailors cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to God. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So first, this story is full of irony. The pagan sailors pray to Yahweh, but Jonah 
doesn't utter a word to God here. In, in verse 14, the independent noun, you, adds emphasis to the direction of the sailors' prayers. They pray, they used to pray to other gods, but here they pray to Jonah's God. I mean, who's godly here? Like pagans? The prophet? The lines, they're just not clearly drawn. Also, did you catch verse 15? Like, verse 15 kind of kills me. Then they took Jonah and hurled him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. Those praying pagans, with what I imagine were like tears streaming down their storm-weary faces, do as Jonah says, even though they don't want to. Honestly, it's so surprising that if you heard the plot twist for the first time, you'd like laugh out loud. Then finally, this great big fish. Like, what is going on with this human swallowing big fish? Now, there is some debate about the connection of the fish to the context of the ancient world, but Jewish scholar Erica Brown makes an argument for how to understand the big fish. Erica Brown says, since the region was heavily fished, the mysteries of the sea and its power over the fiscal fate of many in the region would, no doubt, have made Jonah's story far-fetched to modern sensibilities, but compelling for those who lived during the time. You see, everything comes from something. And the big fish is more than just a big fish. Purple is more than purple. The big fish is this prop drawn from a culture to tell a bigger story about God and how far God will go to bring love to people who do not deserve love by any measurement we take, but yes, will be offered love all the same. God's grace, it seems, is no joke. But there is something so sacred about a story that you can laugh at. Like the funny places are where grace hides out. Can you have humor for a part of your own story? I mean, employ the comedy of the absurd when you retrace your past. Like, can you believe you did that? Get a laugh in, in a hard time. I mean, it's hard to see it when you're in it. It could be that the very worst thing in you makes you the very best person you're meant to be. It could be that the thing that you want so badly but doesn't seem to come shapes a hole inside of you that makes you more human. It could be that the horrible thing you endured is by far the most formative and redemptive part of your story. And I am not saying that God causes that pain or missing out on what you want means it was never meant to be. I am not saying that. But maybe unlove teaches you how to love. And cruelty has a way of teaching you how to be kind. And sinking teaches you how to swim eventually. Like, I know sometimes you sink and you sink and you sink deeper still. But even at the bottom, there is this space for you to breathe. And it might be dark, and it might smell like rotting squid, but you're alive down there. 
And you're about to find your voice. Jonah prays in chapter two. So stay tuned. Please join me as we pray. Loving God, who made the world and everything in it, we are reminded today of the creativity of stories, the symbols of faith, the grace and benevolence at the heart of all things. And as we learn over and over again, the lessons of love replacing fear, grace banishing violence, new beginnings that come when there's an ending. Will you, Christ, teach us how to laugh and find gratitude in small moments of grace, the spirit of the living God present with us, enter the stormy seas of our lives and the flawed human interactions, and heal us of all that harms us. Amen.